This is Medieval Death Trip for October 31st, 2018, episode 60, concerning how the dead man Glaumer terrorized Thorhalstead. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Another Halloween has come upon us, and that means we've made it through a fourth year of death-tripping through the Middle Ages. To celebrate this anniversary, we're going to hear an especially famous medieval ghost story. This past year saw our first forays into Norse literature. Well, a year plus a few days. Our Heimskringla episode came out right before our last Halloween episode. Uh, But now we're about to dip into another saga— Our story involves a bit of Icelandic ghost-busting, as seen in Greta's saga. If you're into the sagas, then Greta's saga is probably quite familiar to you. It's one of the most popular single-hero adventure sagas out there. If you're an English major, then you may well have encountered Greta's saga, or at least references to it, in discussions of Beowulf, because there are a number of narrative echoes between the two texts. And indeed, our story today is one of those echoes, uh, one distant cousin of Grendel. Greta's Saga is the Icelandic title of the text. In English, it would be The Saga of Grettir, or Grettir's Saga. Grettis is the possessive form of the name Grettir in Old Icelandic, and we'll have a little linguistic sidebar about names and name endings in a bit. But Greta's saga is the life story of an Icelander named Grettir Ausmundersson. Grettir spends much of his adult life as an outlaw, first from Iceland, then from Norway, and so on, and consequently has to go on a lot of travels and gets into a lot of trouble, leaving a considerable trail of bodies in his wake. But I'm not going to go into the details of Greta's saga. The little episode from the saga we're going to hear is rather neatly self-contained, and Grettir is almost a secondary figure in it. He is the protagonist in the end, but he doesn't even show up until halfway through. It's enough for you just to know that he's a tough guy who is usually a bit difficult to get along with, traits he shares with the other main character of today's story, the ghost, or revenant, or draugr, Glaumer. Anyway, as to the saga, if you want to know more about it and the larger story, you should definitely go check out the episodes that the Saga Thing podcast did on Greta's Saga uh, back in 2015. Uh, That'd be episode 16, which is divided into five parts, and will give you over seven hours of intense and entertaining Greta's Saga discussion. They also promised back then a future episode specifically on the literary criticism connecting Beowulf to Greta Saga, uh, which I don't believe ever came out. Uh, So if you guys are listening, you've got at least one vote here for finishing that saga brief, however belatedly. At any rate, I'm happy to let them do the heavy lifting. I'll just briefly hit on some of our typical contextual points, such as noting that the author of this saga is unknown and its composition dates to the first half of the 14th century, which makes it one of the later medieval sagas. The story it tells is set about 300 years earlier, in the early 11th century. The value of the sagas as history has long been a contentious point, and their perceived truth value has waxed and waned according to scholarly trends. 
but the context of the writing of Greta's saga puts it fairly firmly in the deliberately concocted historical fiction camp. Which is fine by us, because we're just looking for a good spooky story, and this saga is going to deliver. Our episode title has already spoiled one of the major plot points, uh, so let's go ahead and take a look at the nature of Glaumer. As I said, this is a Revenant story, with many similarities to the English Revenants we saw in our second Halloween episode, episode 31, concerning the Revenants of William of Newburgh. The distinguishing trait of the Revenant of Northern European folklore, and the main reason we usually call them Revenants rather than ghosts, is that they very much possess physical bodies. Those bodies have superhuman properties and often inhuman characteristics, but they are physical creatures that are fought with physically, usually in hand-to-hand combat. They're different from trolls or giants because they are undead, and they were once human and retain their past identity and personality. Whether they actually are human spirits is a matter of theological debate in the Middle Ages, and if you want to hear more about that, go listen to episode 31. The temperamental and unfortunate shepherd Glaumer starts the story out as a living man, but when he dies, he becomes almost a model Norse revenant, or Draugr. He engages in all the classic revenant activities. After getting an unhallowed burial, he's suddenly seen by witnesses to be wandering around the area. Eventually, he starts getting violent, accosting people and killing livestock. He does one very traditional thing that we didn't see in the William of Newburgh stories, which is roof riding. This is pretty much what it sounds like. He gets up on the peak of the roof of a building, sits astride it, and kicks at it with his feet and otherwise bangs around and makes a lot of noise, and breaks beams and rafters and whatnot. This is something we see a number of other saga revenants doing, and it's a motif that persists through Scandinavian folklore, and shows up elsewhere, too. There's some later witch lore that features roof riding, and you might even see traces of it in stories of the Jersey Devil and other monsters that clamber around on rooftops. There's even something of a modern Scandinavian descendant of the old roof rider. Maybe. If you search for the term Togvandren on the internet, you'll get a lot of hits from a range of paranormal and monster sites and Pinterest collections of monster pictures, These so-called roof walkers, or roof crawlers, or roof wanderers, kind of combine elements of the Monkey Man of Delhi, which caused a minor panic back in 2001, and the stories of demonic black-eyed children, which have been making a more recent ruckus in the UK, and which seem to be infesting the horror short film genre, I've noticed, probably because they're an especially cheap and easy effect to pull off. Uh, Anyway, the Norwegian roofwalker is supposed to look like a human in dark clothes or even a hoodie with glowing red eyes and claws for hands who, and this is the defining characteristic, travels by rooftops, treetops, along fences and walls, just generally on any elevated surface. And they'll scare people by banging on windows or pouncing down on them and attacking them. The Togvandren is being positioned to be Norway's answer to Slenderman. And like Slenderman, it looks like it's a bit of pseudo-folklore, or something presented as folklore that turns out to have probably been the invention of one single person. The origins of the Togvandren are laid out by Garth Haslam in a post on his website, Monsters Here and There, 
where he traces the whole thing back to a single deviant art user called Human. The names for the creature and the stories all seem to originate in a 2012 post from this user, but others went on to take the images and added their own confirmatory first-person stories and pass the whole legend along. There is something in this phenomenon that relates to the sagas. Some sagas are written versions of oral tradition and oral history, but others are kind of like the creepypasta storytelling that produced Slenderman. They're fiction written in the style of an existing genre of eyewitness account, or at least friend-of-a-friend stories, and as with creepypasta memes, a lot of readers end up having a hard time discerning the difference. But back to Monsters on Rooftops. I tried to find a good folkloric scholarly analysis of the origins and cultural significance of roof riding, uh, but I came up short. If any of you know of a book that covers it in any depth, uh, do send me a tweet at MDT Podcast. I'd love to follow up on it. The only thing I did turn up was the suggestion that roof riding originates as an explanation for the noises made by the menagerie of rodents, birds, and other animals that made their homes in the turf and thatched roofs of medieval houses. I guess that's a plausible hypothesis, but there's not much romance to it. Anyway, you'll get to see Glaumer ride the roof in much more spectacular fashion multiple times in our story today. So let's get into some specifics about the text I'll be using. For this episode, I started with a translation originally published in 1869 by the Icelander Erdiker Magnusson and the Englishman William Morris. Yes, the same William Morris, famed for his wallpapers and fabrics and for spearheading the arts and crafts movement. He was also connected to the Pre-Raphaelites and their medievalist interests, bringing the Gothic into the Victorian, and he also developed a strong interest not only in Arthurian literature, but in Norse sagas and mythology. And he was a writer himself who explored medieval legends in epic verse. However, this 1869 translation is a bit rough to get through. A few episodes back, I praised Samuel Lee's 1829 translation of Ibn Battuta for eschewing the archaisms that often overpower 19th century translations like noxiously strong perfume, or maybe overly ornate Victorian wallpaper. Well, Morris and Magnuson are laying it on pretty thick. You run into a lot of these kinds of lines in this translation, uh, like, Thorhall answered, A wholesome counsel would I have from thee. Little am I meet for that, said Skafti, but what dost thou stand in need of? I suspect a lot of this lies with Erdiker Magnuson. I can see how translating the sagas could actually be harder for a native Icelandic speaker than for an outsider. Compared to a lot of other languages and their medieval forms, there's not as much difference between modern Icelandic and old Icelandic. 12th century English is essentially incomprehensible to a modern English speaker, but I've heard it described that for an Icelander, reading the sagas is akin to reading Elizabethan English. We can read Shakespeare, it might take a little bit of work, and there's some syntax and vocabulary that you might need a gloss to follow, but it's not inaccessible. Though, if you were to try to translate Shakespeare into a language other than English, how would you render it? Would you try to give it an archaic and old-timey flavor? Or would you put it into a clean, modern idiom in that language? Actually, Shakespeare is not a great example, since it's poetry, and that brings additional concerns into what flavor you give the translation. But, in terms of capturing the experience of Shakespeare in your translation, 
Do you capture your modern experience of reading this older form of the language you speak and share that with non-English speakers? Or do you share the experience of the original audience who didn't perceive the language as old-fashioned? With the sagas, I think most English speakers want to hear them in the same kind of style as the medieval audiences would have perceived them, and not as a modern Icelander perceives saga style. I suspect that Erdiker Magnusson, though I don't have any statement from him saying this, I suspect he's creating an English translation that feels to him like Old Icelandic does, and that leads to this very stilted style. Usually, I do try to stick to the language of our translations, just making edits where I think oral comprehension might suffer or where syntax or vocabulary just get too obscure. These translations are their own layer in this whole history of how we've encountered and used these texts over time, and I believe in respecting that and preserving it in the same way I try to respect the medieval text. But for this particular story, it's just a bit too much, Um, and this is meant to be a fun Halloween story, so what you will hear is a version of that translation heavily revised by me. I started with the 1869 text and consulted an edition of the Icelandic text and worked through them side by side with my trusty Zoiga dictionary, and I also consulted Jesse Biox's 2009 translation for particular points of clarification. Anyway, the end product is something I can't really call my translation, uh, but it's also barely recognizable as the 1869 version. I will explain a couple of my choices. Sagas tend not to worry much about the consistency of verb tenses. Part of that is conventions of the language, uh, but I think it also has an oral storytelling element. When we're telling stories conversationally, we often change tense without rhyme or reason. Yesterday, I walked downtown and met my buddy, and he says, what are you doing down here? And I say, and so forth. Lots of translators make the tenses consistent. Our 1869 translators didn't, and I'm not going to either. The other big thing you might have noticed if you compare translations is how proper names and place names are treated. Icelandic has inflected endings. So, for example, the nominative case of some masculine nouns ends in R, and you see that ending on many names but anglicized versions often drop the ending, much as we do with some saints' names and Latin names, like how Marcus Antonius is Mark Antony, or the Italian San Francesco becomes Saint Francis. In Icelandic, Olavr becomes Olaf, Thorvaldr becomes Thorvald. Translators of the sagas are all over the place on whether they keep that nominative ending or drop it. Um, both our 1869 translators and Jesse Bayak drop the endings, and that means the monster in their text is named Glaum. My choice here is really aesthetic rather than principled. I generally like to keep the endings when I'm working with Old Norse texts. Uh, Yes, it does lead to certain linguistic mutants like attaching an English-inflected ending, like a possessive apostrophe S, onto the Icelandic nominative ending rather than using the Icelandic genitive, but I don't care. I happen to like those endings, except when they lead to a name that's hard to say, like Thorhaltler, especially if you try to do the double L's in the Icelandic way, which is a funky pronunciation from an English speaker's perspective, Uh, which means my text has Thorhall on the one hand and Glaumar on the other. Grettir actually doesn't require a change, and most of the place names keep their endings. As for bits of medieval Icelandic cultural context, You know, I collected a bunch of little notes on things, but really, I think we'll be fine without most of it. 
you'll get hit with a few runs of people and place names that won't have been introduced, but they don't really matter for this story. You can just ignore them. Thorhall is a main character, and where we start in the text is his very first appearance. Same with Glaumer. When Gretter enters the saga, he comes trailing a few kinsmen and allies and enemies for a couple of paragraphs, but that doesn't matter either. We have a trip to the All Thing, which is the big national assembly where all the chieftains or Gothar gather with their supporters to recite the law and hash out legal cases and generally meet with each other and make deals. We'll see a reference to Thorhall sleeping in a locked bed closet, um, and that's pretty much what it sounds like. You can picture the main house of a big farmstead as a hall, not exactly a grand mead hall, but functionally similar. It's mainly one big room with benches along the sides. Servants and other family members would sleep out in this open space, but a well-off farmer like Thorhall might sleep in a kind of cubby, and that's the bed closet. It's a small room, closet-sized, that people slept in. A bit like a Japanese sleeping pod. It afforded the householder a measure of privacy that most other people didn't get. And speaking of heads of household... One term you won't actually see, except through its different translations, is Husfreya, which is the word the saga most often uses to describe Thorhall's wife. It has two elements, hus, or house, and Freya. Putting those two elements together, one is tempted to translate it as domestic goddess, um, but that doesn't quite capture the meaning. Uh, Freya is the word for lady, and thence comes to be the name for the Norse goddess, rather than the other way around. Uh, Freya is the lady. Our translators usually render Husfreya as housewife. I think the term conveys a kind of authority beyond the connotations of housewife in English. Mistress of the house or lady of the house would be a more accurate translation. Um, the person in charge of the domestic economy. Uh, but that's a bit clunky to say over and over again. Magnuson sometimes translates it as good wife with echoes of Puritan New England. I'm generally going to stick with housewife, uh, but when you hear that, think chief domestic manager or vice president of the farmstead as an organization. There are also lots of interesting different words for haunting and ghost and revenant, uh, but those lead us to a more technical discussion than I think we can handle. Best just to enjoy them in action. So let's do it. Let's slip into the murky, icy waters of the saga. Here's the tale of Glaumer and Grettir from Greta's Saga, chapters 32 through 35, adapted from the translation by Erker Magnuson and William Morris. There was a man called Thorhall, who dwelt at Thorhallstead in Forsyludalr, which runs up from Vatnsdalr. Thorhall was the son of Grim, son of Thorhall, the son of Frithmund, who settled Forsyludalr. Thorhall had a wife called Guthrun. Grim was their son, and Thorith their daughter. They were almost full grown. Thorhall was a rich man, but mostly in cattle. 
No man had as much livestock as he. He was no chief, but was an honest farmer. His land was much haunted, and he could hardly get a shepherd of any usefulness. He sought counsel of many men as to what course of action he might take, but none gave him advice that would serve him. Thorhall rode each summer to the Thing. He had good horses. One summer at the Althing, Thorhall went to the booth of Skafti Thordson, the lawyer. Skafti was the wisest of men and gave wholesome counsel when he was asked. But he and his father were different in that Thorod spoke prophecy and yet was called underhanded by some. But Skafti showed forth to every man what he deemed most useful, if it were not departed from, and therefore he was called Father Betterer. Now Thorhall went into Skafti's booth, and Skafti greeted him well, for he knew that he was a man rich in property, and asked him what the news was. Thorhall answered, I want to receive good advice from you. In regards to that, I'm of little use, said Skafti, but what troubles you? Thorhall said, This is how it's going. Shepherds are with me for far too short a time. It happens, rather, that they get injured, and some go before the job is over. And now no one will take the job when he knows what lies in wait. Skafti answered, Some harmful being must be there, since men are more reluctant to watch your sheep than those of other men. Now, therefore, since you have asked my advice, I shall procure you a shepherd, who is called Glaumer, a Swede of descent from Silgsdaler, who came out to Iceland last summer big and strong, but not to the liking of most people. Thorhall declared that this did not matter much if he watched the sheep well. Skafti said it would be on other people if, despite his strength and daring, he could not watch their sheep. Then Thorhall went away. This was towards the breaking up of the thing. Thorhall was missing two dun horses and went off by himself to seek for them. For that reason, people thought that he was no great man. He went up under Slethaus, or Sledge Ridge, and south along the fell which is called Armin's Fell. Then he saw how a man was traveling down from Gothaskogar, that is, Gothi's Wood, carrying brushwood on a horse. Soon they met, and Thorhall asked him his name. He said that he was called Glaumer. This man was of great size, extraordinary in appearance, blue-eyed and glaring, his hair wolf-gray. When he saw this man, Thorhall regarded him until he recognized that this was the one he had been directed to. What work are you best at? said Thorhall. Glaumer said that he was of a good mind to watch sheep in winter. Will you watch my sheep? said Thorhall. Skafti has put you in my charge. My service will only be of use to you if I can do as I will, for I am irritable if I don't like how things are going, said Glaumer. That is no problem for me, said Thorhall, and I would like you to come to my place. That I'll do, said Glaumer, but maybe there's some trouble there? It is reckoned to be haunted, said Thorhall. I am not frightened by ghosts, said Glaumer, and it seems to me less boring. You may well think that, said Thorhall, and truly it is better you not think too little of yourself. After that, they made a contract together, Glaumer to arrive at the start of winter nights. Then they parted, and Thorhall found his horses where he had just been searching. Thorhall rode home and thanked Skafti for his good deed.
Summer slipped away, and Thorhall heard nothing of his shepherd, nor did any man know anything about him, but at the appointed time he came to Thorhallstead. The farmer greeted him well, but none of the other folk could abide him, Thorhall's wife least of all. He took to the sheep watching, and little trouble it seemed to give him. He was big-voiced and booming, and all the beasts would run together when he whooped. There was a church at Thorhallstead, but Glaumer would in no way go in. He was a loather of church song, and godless, foul-tempered and surly, and he was detestable to all. Now time passed until it was Yule Eve. Then Glaumer got up and straightway called for his meat. The farmer's wife said, No man who calls himself Christian eats meat on this day, because tomorrow is the first day of Yule, she says, and so men first must fast today. He answers, You have many superstitions which come to nothing. I don't think that men fare better now than when they paid no heed to such things, and I think the ways of men were better when they were called heathens. And now I will have my meat and none of this fooling. Then said the housewife, I know for sure that you will fare badly today if you take this evil path. Glaumer bade her bring food straight away and said that otherwise she should fare the worse. She did as he wished, and so when he was full he went out, growling and grumbling. Now the weather was such that murk was over all, and the snowflakes drove down, and the wind howled, and still all grew much the worse as the day slipped away. Men heard the shepherd through the early morning, but less of him as the day wore on. Then it took to snowing, and by evening there was a great storm. Then men went to church, and thus time drew on to nightfall, and Glaumer did not come home. Then folk debated whether a search should be made for him, but because of the snowstorm and pitch darkness, nothing came of it. He did not come home on Yule Eve, and thus men waited until after the time of worship. But further on in the day, men went out on the search and found the sheep scattered wide about the fens, beaten down by the storm or strayed up into the mountains. Afterward, they came on a much trammeled place high up in the valley, and they thought it looked as though a fierce scuffle had happened there, for all around the stones had been uptorn along with the earth. Now they looked closely and saw where Glaumer lay a little way off. He was dead and black as hell and bloated up like an ox. Great loathing took them at the sight of him, and their resolve faltered, yet they attempted to bring him to church, but could get him only as far as the rim of a certain gully a little way below. Then they journeyed home to the farmstead and told the farmer what had happened. He asked what they thought had been Glaumer's killer. They said they had tracked footprints as large as if a cask bottom had been stamped down, from there where the trodden place was, up to beneath sheer rocks which were high up the valley, and along them trailed great stains of blood. Men deduced from this that the evil creature which had been there before had killed Glaumer, but had received such wounds as must have finished it, for no one ever heard of it afterward. The second day of Yule, men went afresh to try to bring Glaumer to church. Oxen were hitched to him, but they could move him nowhere further once they had got him downhill to the level ground. Then the people had to go away, leaving things as they were. The third day, the priest went with them, and they searched all day but could not find Glaumer. The priest did not want to search any further, but the shepherd was found once the priest was not in their company. 
Then they gave up trying to bring him to church and buried him there where he had been brought. A little time after, men became aware that Glaumer did not lay quiet. Folk received great harm from that, so that many fell into swoons when they saw him, and others lost their wits from it. Just after Yule, men thought they saw him home at the farm. Folk became exceeding afraid because of this, and many fled right there and then. Next, Glaumer took to riding the house roofs at night, so that he nearly caved them in. Then he walked about both night and day. Men hardly dared to go up into the valley, even though they had plenty of errands there. The men of the region deemed all this a great evil. In the spring, Thorhall hired servants and set up house at his farm. The revenants' walks began to decrease while the sun was at its height, and so things went on to midsummer. That summer, a ship came out to Hunavatn, in which was a man named Thorgout. He was a foreigner, big and stout, and had the strength of two men. He was unemployed and single, and wanted to do some work, for he was moneyless. Thorhall rode to the ship and asked Thorgout if he would work for him. Thorgout said that might be, and moreover, that he was not picky about work. Be prepared, said Thorhall, since cowards are of no use there because of the hauntings that have been going on for a while now, for I will not lead you on with false pretenses. Thorgout answers, I'm no quitter, even if I should see some little ghosts. If it's enough to make me scared, other people won't be having an easy time of it, nor will I break our contract for that. Now they come speedily to an arrangement that Thorgout is to watch the sheep when winter comes. So the summer wore on, and Thorgout took up the shepherding at winter nights, and was well-liked by everyone. But Glaumer continually came home and rode atop the house. Thorgout found this funny, and said, The thrall must come nearer to scare me. Thorhall asked him to keep silent over that. It would be better that you have no trial together. Thorgout said, Surely all courage is shaken out of you. I will not drop dead overnight at such talk. And so things go on through the winter till Yuletide. On Yule Eve, the shepherd intended to go out to his sheep. Then said the housewife, It is necessary that things not go as they did before. He answered, Have no fear of that, madam. It will be something worth telling if I don't come back. Then he went out to his sheep. The weather was somewhat cold, and there was much snow. Thorgout usually came home when twilight had set in, but now he came not at that time. Folk went to church as they were wont to do. Men now thought things looked not unlike they had before. The farmer wanted a search made for the shepherd, but the churchgoers begged off and said they would not give themselves into the hands of trolls by night. So the farmer dared not go, and the search came to nothing. Yule Day, when men were full, they journeyed out and searched for the shepherd. They went first to Glaumer's cairn, because men thought that his deeds caused the loss of the shepherd. And when they came to the cairn, they saw a remarkable thing, for there they found the shepherd, and his neck was broken, and every bone in him smashed. Then they brought him to the church, and no harm came to the men afterwards from Thorgalt. But Glaumer began afresh to grow strong, 
and such deeds he wrought that all men fled away from Thorhalstead except the farmer and his wife. Now a certain cowherd had long been there, and Thorhall would not let him go because of his good will and watchfulness. He was well on in years and was very loath to travel away, for he saw that all the things the farmer had went to nothing from not being watched. Now, after midwinter, one morning the housewife went to the buyer to milk the cows after the usual time. By then it was broad daylight, for no one besides the cowherd would dare go out before day, but he went out at dawn. She heard a great cracking in the buyer, with bellowing and roaring. She ran back, crying out, and said she knew not what awful things were going on in the byre. The farmer went out and came to the cows, which were goring one another. So he thought it not a good idea to go in there, but went into the hay barn. There he saw where the cowherd lay, cast on his back, his head in one cow stall and his feet in the other. The farmer went up to him and felt him all over with his hand, and soon finds that he was dead his spine sundered in half, it had been broken over the raised stone edge of a stall. Now the farmer thought that there was no abiding there longer, so he fled away from the farm with all that he might take, but all the livestock that were left behind Glaumer killed, and then he wandered all over the valley and destroyed farms up from Tunga. But Thorhall was with his friends the rest of the winter. No man might go up the dale with horse or hound, because straightway it was slain. But when spring came, and the sunlight was the greatest, the hauntings somewhat abated. And now Thorhall wanted to go back to his own land. He had no easy task in getting servants. Nevertheless, he set up house again at Thorhallstead. But everything went the same way as before. For when autumn came, the hauntings began to increase again. The farmer's daughter was attacked the most often, and it happened that she died of her injuries. Much advice was sought, but nothing could be done. Men thought it likely that all Vatensdaler would be laid waste if nothing were found to fix this. Now we take up the story where Gretar Ausmundson sat at Bjarg through the autumn after he and Killer Barthi parted at Thorajarna. And when the time of winter nights had arrived, Gretar rode from home north over the neck to Vithisdaler and lodged at Athunstead. He and Athun made a full peace, and Gretar gave Athun a good axe, and they talked of friendship between them. Athun dwelt for a long time at Athunstead and was a man of good and promising kin. His son was Eil, who married Ulfheid, daughter of Eilf Guthmundsund, and their son was Eilf, who was slain at the Althing. He was the father of Orm, who was the chaplain of Bishop Thorlak. Greta rode north to Vatensdaler and came to see his kin at Tunga. In those days, Jokul Bartherson, Greta's uncle, lived there. Jokul was big and strong, and an exceedingly violent man. He was a seafarer, very wild, and yet a man of great account. He greeted Gretter well, and he was there three nights. There was so much talk about Glaumer's hauntings that nothing else was much spoken of. Gretter asked closely about all things that had happened. Jokul said that no more was being said than the very truth. And perhaps you have a mind to go there, kinsman. Gretter said that it was so. Jokul asked him not to do it. 
because it would be a great test of your good fortune, and your kinsmen have much at risk wherever you go, said he. For of young men we think there is none such as you, but evil breeds evil where Glaumer is concerned, and it is far better to contend with men than with such evil creatures. Gretter said that he intended to go to Thorhalstead and see how things went there. Said Jokel, Now I see it is no use in stopping you, but so it is, as men say. Luckiness and accomplishment are two different things. Gretter replied, Woe is before one's own door when it is inside one's neighbor's. Think how it may go with yourself by the time things are ended. Jokel answered, Maybe we may both see something of what is to come, but it may be of no help to us now. After this, they parted, and neither thought well of the other's foretelling. Gretter rode to Thorhalstead, and the farmer gave him a good welcome. He asked where Gretter was headed, but Gretter said he would be there that night if the farmer agreed. Thorhall said he thanked him for this, and he said, But few have thought it a treat to stay here as a guest for any time. You must have heard about what is going on here, and I don't want you to have any trouble on my account. And even if you should come out unscathed yourself, I assure you that you will lose your horse, for no one who comes here keeps his horse unharmed. Gretter said that horses were an ample supply, regardless of what happened to this one. Then Thorhall was glad that Gretter was to be there, and gave him a hearty welcome. Now Gretter's horse was locked up in a strongly framed building, and they went to sleep, and so the night slipped by, and Glaumer did not come home. Then said Thorhall, Things have gone well since you came, for every night Glaumer is wont to ride the roofs, or break open doors, as you may well see. Gretter said, Then one of two things will happen. Either he shall not hold himself back for long, or the hauntings will abate for more than one night. I will wait here another night and see how things go. Then they went to Gretter's horse, and no harm had come to it. Then it seemed to the farmer to be going well. Now Gretter is there another night, and the thrall does not come home. This the farmer deemed very hopeful, and he went to see after Gretter's horse. But when the farmer came there, he found the building broken into, and the horse was dragged out to the doorway, and every bone in him broken to pieces. Thorhall told Gretter what had happened there, and suggested he save himself. Your death is certain if you wait around for Glaumer. Gretter answered, I won't take anything less for my horse than a look at the thrall. The farmer said there was no benefit in seeing him, for he is not shaped like any man. But every hour that you are here is a good one. Now the day goes by, and when it came time that men should go to sleep, Gretter would not take off his clothes, but lay down on the seat across from the farmer's locked bed closet. He had a woolen cloak over him, and wrapped one skirt of it under his feet, and twined the other under his head, and looked out through the head opening. A seat beam was before the seat, a very strong one, and against this he set his feet. The door fittings were all broken from the outer door, but a wrecked door was now tied on there, and all was fitted up in the most ramshackle way. The paneling which had been before the seat across the hall was all broken away both above and below the crossbeam. All the beds had been torn out of place, and an unpleasant place it was. Light burned in the hall through the night, and when the third part of the night was passed, Gretter heard a huge noise outside 
And then someone went up upon the buildings and rode the hall and beat his heels against the thatch so that every rafter cracked again. That went on for a long time. And then he came down from atop the house and went to the door. And as the door opened, Grutter saw the thrall stretching in his head, which seemed to him monstrously large and strangely formed. Glaumer proceeded slowly as he came into the doorway and stretched himself high up under the roof and turned looking along the hall and laid his hands on the tie beam and glared in at the place. The farmer would not let himself be heard, for he deemed that he had had enough himself in hearing what went on outside. Gretir lay quiet and did not move. Then Glaumer saw that some bundle lay on the seat and thus he stalked up the hall and gripped at the cloak wondrously hard. But Gretter set his foot against the beam and did not budge. Glaumer pulled again much harder, but still the cloak moved not at all. The third time he pulled with both hands so hard that he drew Gretter upright from the seat, and now they tore the cloak apart between them. Glaumer gazed at the rag he held in his hand and greatly wondered who might pull so hard against him. And at that moment, Gretter ran under his hands and gripped him round the middle and bent his spine back as hard as he might. He hoped that Glaumer would retreat at this, but the thrall lay so hard on Gretter's arms that it was all he could do to break free from Glaumer's strength. Then Gretter stepped back along the seats, but the seat beams were driven out of place and all before them was broken. Glaumer wanted to escape, but Gretter set his feet against everything that he could. Nevertheless, Glaumer dragged him out from the hall. There they had a wondrously hard tussle, because the thrall had a mind to bring him out of the house. But Gretter saw that as bad as it was to deal with Glaumer indoors, the worse it would be outside. Therefore he struggled with all his might against the both of them going out. Glaumer gathered up his strength and pulled Gretter towards him as they came to the outer door. And when Gretter saw that he might not set his feet against that, all of a sudden, in one rush, he thrust his hardest against the thrall's breast and kicked both feet against the half-sunken stone that stood in the threshold of the door. This the thrall was not ready for, since he had been tugging to draw Gretter to him. Therefore, he reeled back and spun out against the door so that his shoulders caught the upper door case, and the roof burst asunder, both rafters and frozen thatch, and thus he fell open-armed backwards out of the house and Gretter on top of him. Outside was bright moonlight through broken clouds. Now one passed over the moon, now it is driven off of her. At the same moment Glaumer fell, a cloud was driven from the moon, and Glaumer glared up at her and Gretter himself says that this sight was the only thing he ever saw that frightened him. Then, from all these things, both from weariness and because he had seen Glaumer turn his eyes so horribly, his spirit sank within him so much that he could not draw his short sword and lay stuck between home and hell. But there was more fiendish craft in Glaumer than in most other ghosts, and he spoke now as follows. You arranged to meet me with exceeding eagerness, Gretir, but no one will wonder that you got nothing good from me. And this must I tell you, 
that you will gain only half the strength and manhood which would have been yours if you had never met me. Now, I might not be able to take from you the strength which you already possess, but I have the power to make it that you shall never be mightier than you are right now. Nonetheless, you are mighty enough as is, as many others will learn. Until now you have earned your fame by your deeds, but from now on outlawry and homicides will befall you, and the greater part of your actions will turn to your woe and mischance. An outlaw shall you be made, and ever shall it be your lot to dwell abroad alone. Therefore this fate I lay on you, that always you will see these eyes with your eyes, and you will find it hard to be alone, and that will drag you down to death. Now when the thrall had thus spoken, the shock that had gripped Grettir fell away from him, and then he drew the short sword and severed the head from Glaumer and laid it at his thigh. Then the farmer came out. He addressed himself while Glaumer had his say, but he dared not approach until Glaumer had fallen. Thorhall praised God for this and thanked Grettir well for defeating this unclean spirit. Then they set to work and burned Glaumer to cold coals, and afterwards they gathered his ashes into the skin of a beast and buried it down where sheep pastures and pathways were fewest. After this, they walked home, and by then it had got far on towards day. Grettir lay down, for he was very stiff, and Thorhall sent to the nearest farm for men and both showed and told them how everything had gone. All men who heard of this deemed it a deed of great worth, and in those days it was said by all that none in all the land was like to Grettir Ausmanson for great heart and prowess. Thorhall saw off Grettir handsomely and gave him a good horse and fine clothes, for those he had worn before were all torn to pieces, and so they parted as friends. Grettir rode from there to the ridge in Vatnsdalr, and Thorvaldr received him well and asked him in detail about the struggle with Glaumer. Grettir told him everything and said that he had never had such a test of his strength so long was their struggle. Thorvaldr advised him to keep a low profile. Then all will go well with you, otherwise you will be a man of many troubles. Grettir said that his temper had been in no way improved by this experience that he was harder to calm than before, and that he deemed all trouble to be worse than it was, but that here he found the greatest change, that he had become a man so afraid of the dark that he dare not go anywhere alone after nightfall, for then he seemed to see all kinds of horrors. And that has since become a saying, that Glaumer lends his eyes or gives Glaum sight to those who see things not as they really are. Grettir rode home to Biard when he had finished his business, and sat at home through the winter. So, there's how the outlaw hero Grettir Ausmanson became afraid of the dark. 
We've already talked about revenants and roof writing, and this was a rather long story, uh, so I don't have much other commentary to add. The only thing that lingers with me is the question of the original haunting of Thorhalstead. What was that monster? This remains an unsolved mystery. It left footprints the size of barrels. Was it a troll? Was it another swollen revenant of a forgotten individual who died sometime long ago in the valley? Did it somehow curse or corrupt Glaumer when it killed him, like a vampire, condemning him to rise again? Or did Glaumer come back just because he was an antisocial blasphemer who didn't get a proper burial? Did the second shepherd Thorgout not become a revenant after he was killed because he did get buried in a churchyard? Or was it because he was always a nice guy and everybody liked him? If there's one thing the sagas are not guilty of, especially in terms of their horror genre elements, it's over-explaining. Maybe my tastes are old-fashioned, but I certainly side with many horror critics who feel like there's an epidemic of over-explanation in horror films these days, especially the likes of the Conjuring franchise or almost any story with a demonic entity in it that has to have someone pulling up the demon's Wikipedia page and reading off its whole backstory. I thought for a change of pace this Halloween episode, I'd end with a couple of scary movie recommendations that might enhance your Halloween night. I actually make that three recommendations, though one of these is just a quick bonus. In fact, I'll start with that one, and it's the 1989 cinematic adaptation of Stephen King's novel Pet Cemetery. A trailer for a remake has recently dropped. Uh, I guess they're trying to capitalize on the success of It. That put me in the mood to rewatch the old version, which is presently available on Amazon Prime streaming in the U.S. Uh, this movie gave me serious nightmares as a child, almost exclusively because of the character of Zelda. Those of you who have seen the movie or read the book know what I'm talking about. And I think it holds up well enough. Uh, and I mention it because it has a kind of revenant theme. There is this question about what exactly rises to walk again from the Micmac burial ground. Is it the person who was buried, but corrupted by death? Or is it some evil spirit that's merely impersonating the person and inhabiting their corpse? I know the novel has some stuff about the Wendigo involved, um, but at any rate, I think a medieval theologian would have a field day interrogating the story. But I think Pet Cemetery has enough of a fandom that it doesn't really need my help. My next recommendation is, on the surface, a tougher sell— it comes from one year earlier, 1988, and it is special effects wizard Stan Winston's directorial debut, Pumpkinhead, starring Lance Henriksen. Its title, and the fact that it basically exists to allow a special effects workshop to show off, suggest that you are in for a cheesy creature feature. So you might be surprised to find instead a quite atmospheric, eerie, and rather well-written modern folktale hiding inside this packaging. I can't say it has any direct association with Scandinavian folklore that I'm aware of, uh, but it is a story that has a rather saga-like vibe to it. It's a story about the escalating fallout of bad decisions and the price of revenge. Plus, there's a witch and a rather revenant-like monster dug up out of a kind of burial mound. Pet Cemetery, I'll say, holds up okay. Pumpkinhead, I will stand by as a very well-crafted movie that effectively creates the feeling of a campfire story come to life, and which deserves much more recognition than I think it receives. 
honest truth, it sits right next to Citizen Kane on my DVD shelf. Though that's because I organize my DVDs alphabetically by director, and Wells comes right before Winston. But it still doesn't feel out of place there. And specifically, I do think a viewer who enjoys medieval themes and a medieval approach to the supernatural would be particularly appreciative of Pumpkinhead, uh, even though it's set in 1980s Appalachia. Actually, that's the one real black mark against it. It really wants you to believe that you're in the hollers of Appalachia, but everything unmistakably looks like the hills of rural Southern California. So it does require a bit of suspension of disbelief on that front. Anyway, Pumpkinhead is also up on free streaming for Amazon Prime members, in the U.S. at least. There are direct-to-video sequels. Uh, None of the praise I just offered applies to the sequels. They're more of what you'd probably expect from a monster movie called Pumpkinhead. As a bit of a sampler, here's a snippet of a scene from the movie's prologue. See if you can picture this as dialogue between a saga farmer and a fugitive outlaw who has come banging on his door pursued by something malevolent. Tom Harley! Open up, Tom! It's me, Clayton Heller! Tom! Please open the door! Oh, for God's sakes, Tom, open up, please! It's after me, Tom, it's gonna get me! God in heaven, Tom! Tom Harley, please! Okay, just sit here. You have to, Ellie. Nothing to do with us. What kind of a Christian are you, for God's sakes? Get away from me and my family. Oh, please. You gotta help me, Tom. It's coming. I didn't kill that girl. I don't know nothing about that, and I don't want to. I said I did, Tom, but I didn't. No, I'm sorry, I am. But I can't risk my family for you, Clayton. Now, I got my shotgun here. Get away. Get away before I have to use it. Okay, my final recommendation is another one that probably doesn't really need my help, though it did receive mixed reactions, uh, divided between critical praise and mainstream audience confusion. This is another directorial debut, Robert Eggers' 2015 film The Witch. I went and saw this movie the afternoon after I defended my PhD dissertation, a project which included parts of this podcast, and it was an amazing experience for me, because Eggers is doing exactly the kind of thing I've tried to do in my creative work, and to a degree in this podcast. The artistic goal of the witch is to put a 17th century witch tale on the screen, It really does try to hew closely to the narrative elements and imagery of the period folklore and historical documentation. It certainly does not over-explain, which I think is one of the reasons why a lot of people expecting a conventional scary movie were confused and irritated by it. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, if you would say, I don't understand what's supposed to be scary about a big rabbit staring at me, then The Witch probably isn't going to work for you. I'll also say that in my analysis... The movie works just like colonial witch panic records in another way, in that the world of the film does posit and accept the reality of malevolent witches out there in the woods, as many settlers did, but the core events of the movie can nearly all be accounted for by a rational explanation, especially if you allow for some of the sequences to be other characters' imaginings of what happened to other people. 
Just as you can read a colonial account of a witch stealing a child and read between the lines to hypothesize what probably actually happened, you can do the same thing with the narrative of this movie. I maintain that you can convincingly parse the witch as a tale of psychological horror in which all the supernatural elements are the fantasies of an unreliable point-of-view character. People I've presented this theory to have strenuously rejected it uh, and insist that the story only works as a kind of magical realist literalization of a folktale. But I'd encourage you to go see The Witch if you haven't already and decide for yourself. It's not medieval, but it's medieval adjacent. And as I said, this is the work of a creator who really shows a deep respect for the period sources he's drawing from, a kind of respect you don't often see in Hollywood horror. I think it's something worth supporting, and you can find it streaming right now on U.S. Netflix. And of course, all three films are out on disc. Speaking of supporting projects you like, I want to conclude this anniversary episode with an acknowledgement of those who have supported the show through Patreon. YouTubers who use Patreon are able to run a roll of credits at the end of their videos to highlight their patrons. It's a bit more demanding on an audience's attention to try to do that in podcast episodes, but I wanted to give my patrons a chance to be on a little honor roll here during our fourth anniversary episode. So my most heartfelt thanks and appreciation go out to Adam Marler, Alan T., Andrew Darby, Andrew Gray, Andrew Posteuka, that's a lot of Andrews, well, three Andrews, Ash Allen, Sherry Aiken, Christopher Lane, C. Mastodon, The Dead Ideas Podcast, Demetrius Isagonis, Elizabeth Hollingsworth, Emily, Ethan Gordon, Ezra Riley, Hildur Huchtotter, uh, I hope my pronunciations this episode weren't too appalling, Jack Hartnell, James Maynell, James Sinks, Jasper, Jeff Marr, J.J. Lambie, Justine, Kyle Rovagug, Laura, Lee Steele, Lene Vandermeulen, Marsha Davis, Matthew Lynch, Meryl Faker, Miriam McCann, Nathan Wolfe, Nick Knorr, Nicole Peterson, Patrick J. Barrett, Paul Ryan, Peter Konieczny and Medievalist.net, Ray, Risa Jacobson, Stephanie Freund, Sue Muini, Sue Fraser, Ty Lilia, and William L. Sloan. Thanks to all of you for helping the show and helping me. If any of the rest of you want to join this illustrious crew, you can do so by looking us up on Patreon. You can also tweet comments and questions to me at MDT Podcast, uh, especially anything about roof riding. I can also get email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, and that website is also where you can find more information about this and every episode of the show, going back four years all the way to episode zero, our prologue episode, which includes some excerpts from our namesake, the book Wisconsin Death Trip by Michael Lessie. Christmas is coming up, and I will always recommend Wisconsin Death Trip as a possible gift for the weird history lovers in your life. Or give yourself a gift. You deserve it. Alright, no riddle or mystery word this episode. We're chock full as it is. It's time to push on into year five. So, be careful about where you bury your shepherds this upcoming Yuletide, and thanks for listening. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes, that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because 
whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery, a human at all. <laughs>